The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Morning scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. You're already standing, but please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and then and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of his high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his right ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is good to see you all. This week, when we uh, had adjusted our protocols, we were in the Welcome Center pulling up tape. We were moving the barriers, and it was really fun just to kind of envision uh, what you all would look like when you gathered this morning. Bill commented of, of, of the buzz uh, that, that was humming around the room that, that normally isn't there, and so it is, again, so good uh, to see you and to be with you, to hear you sing out. Um, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And as we journey with Christ, as Luke is accounting it for us, we come to this place where it seems that time is stopping. Now what I mean by that is we were covering pretty good chunks of time when we were moving through some of the parables and the healings and the discourses, but, but now we're literally picking up one step off from where we were last week when Bill ended the sermon. And so it is slowing down, and they are really zeroing in and focusing on this particular text of what was going on in Jesus' memory. And as we begin to look at this passage, we, we situate ourselves in a rather bleak situation. Uh, from the human vantage point, uh, in these steps and in these moments, the, it seems as if there are no hope. There was no hope. And so oftentimes when we look back on events, we have the advantage of the present to interpret those past events. And so one such event was what was called Operation Dynamo. This month, May, in 1940, 81 years ago, this was a tremendous undertaking of the Royal Navy. What you may not have remembered when you woke up this morning is 81 years ago, the continental Europe was under invasion from the German army. Belgian and French and British forces were on the continent and they were fighting against to hold off this um, massive German enterprise. And their forces were beginning to take the, its, its toll and its casualties. They were, were suffering defeat after defeat at the hands of the Germans to pretty much to where the entire force was aligned on a French and Belgian beaches. 
The Germans had uh, overrun the towns where it would be easy to evacuate these soldiers out of the, through the various harbors. And it seemed like it was a dark day. The British Royal Navy de devised a plan, Operation Dynamo, so that they could go and rescue their troops from the beachheads. What they learned and through the course of this event and their uh, tactical execution of this is they needed to send in cover fire through the Air Force. That their ships, they didn't want to risk the entire Royal Navy and some of the ships couldn't even get to where the soldiers were. So various lay citizens or citizens and laymen from their boats like you might find in our own harbors were sent out to recover these Belgian and British soldiers. There were some 400,000 men on those beaches. And through the, the execution and the courage and the, the faithfulness of all that were involved, over 300,000 of them came home. Indeed, there were many casualties, but, but 300,000 came home. Following Dunkirk, if you remember the movie with Harry Styles, for you non-history uh, hist buffs, um, Dunkirk, the question was, is this a disaster or was it a triumph? Is it a disaster or is it a triumph? France surrendered, surrendered to the Germans three weeks later. This left Britain isolated and exposed and vulnerable to the threat of an imminent invasion. Their heavy artillery from their forces had been destroyed so the Germans wouldn't get them. The, the British destroyed them themselves in France. And so they were wondering what would happen next. The new prime minister, Winston Churchill, gathered in the House of Commons on June 4th. He was trying to take the mood, check the mood of the, of the national euphoria that they were experiencing through this tremendous event that some called a, a, a near miracle. And, and the relief of the unexpected deliverance. In one of Churchill's most famous speeches... He said this in the middle. We must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. Later he goes on and towards the end of his speech, as he was checking the pulse of the room and seeing what was going on, he shifted. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, and we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. You see, when we come to this passage, the reason why those words begin to ring true in my mind is that some would say that the easy way out would, be, would have been for Jesus to have left that garden, left the Mount of Olives. But what Christ understood is for redemption to be fully executed, to be fully accomplished, there was no evacuation. And so what we find in this event, in this grim hour, is we find Jesus at a place of no surrender. And as we turn to Jesus, we find him again in the garden on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. 
In the turn of a phrase and a, a simple connective preposition, it says, And while he was still speaking to his disciples, there came a crowd and a man called Judas. Now we know Judas because he's one of the disciples. He's always listed in the, throughout the Gospels with the other disciples. We, he has seen the miracles of Jesus. He has seen the lame walk, the blind see, the dead raised. He heard the proclamations of the coming of the kingdom. He had seen the 5,000 fed. He saw Peter walk on water. But what we know is that these things fell on deaf ears. His heart was not changed. He was a son of perdition. And for 30 pieces of silver, he sold Jesus into the hands of those who desired to overcome him. The reality of Judas is that we don't remember much of the good things he did. And certainly he did. It's like another turncoat that we find in American history. A name that is synonymous with betrayal. Benedict Arnold. In Saratoga, New York, there is a strange monument. It is compri comprised of a sculpture of a boot and an inscription of praise that never mentions my name, the one being memorialized. This monument is, an honor, is in honor of Benedict Arnold, a brave Revolutionary War general before he became a traitor. His actions helped avoid disaster at the Battle of Saratoga. When Arnold tried to sell out West Point, the, the colonial fort, he became a traitor, and he later became, later commanded a redcoat army against the colonists. He later went to England, where a few praised him, but most reviled him. He was given land in Canada, but did not help, that did not help him in any way with security or comfort. The story goes on, someone thought Arnold deserved some kind of recognition there in Saratoga, New York for his early bravery, but because he was an anathema, his name was never mentioned on the inscription his boot was memorialized because he had been wounded in the leg in battle. That's the way it is for traitors. Whatever good they may have done is obscured by the act of betrayal. Jewish, Judas learned and taught us that lesson. And in this particular passage, we see that Jesus, in the midst of tremendous Failure and treason shows others beautiful grace. In the midst of, of terrible failure, our Savior shows tremendous grace. And so as we look at this passage, we're zeroing in on verses 47 through 53, but we're actually going out all the way to verse 25 in chapter 23. And so I want us to look through those four ways, four to five ways that we see grace shown in the midst of failure and treason. The first is this act of betrayal. Judas comes to Jesus and the text tells us that he drew near to kiss him. He drew near to kiss him. Now, there is some discrepancy in early or first century literature about whether or not it was common for a disciple to kiss a rabbi. Some say yes, some say no. But you would think that in this particular event, regardless of what the tradition is, that there could be a different way to designate Christ as the one that the crowds had come to. He approaches Jesus, and it says he draws near to kiss him, but he doesn't, because the Lord intervenes with a question. 
Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Another translation of that word kiss in Greek is love. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with love? The one who had, again, seen Jesus do all these mighty things was unchanged and weaponized a tender and intimate expression as an act of treachery. I believe that Jesus is showing Judas a level of grace, knowing that he's the son of perdition, knowing that he is the fulfillment of, of Zechariah 11. It's almost as if he is giving him one last chance. Judas, don't do this. But what Christ knows is that this must be done in order to fulfill prophecy and to bring about God's redemptive purposes. And didn't Jesus experience an act of betrayal? Next thing we see is that Jesus sits in a sea of ill-thought-out conflict. And a sea of ill-thought-out conflict with it moved from there. And what we find is it says, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with sword? Back in verse 38 of chapter 22, you find on the very table that Jesus established the new covenant. It tells us, and they said, and they being the disciples, look, Lord, here are two swords. You see, Peter was caught up with illusions of power. These men had been arguing over who would sit at the right or the left hand. They wanted to jockey for positions and authority and influence, and these things were clouding their minds. They had messianic hopes that were not grounded in what Christ had taught them, but in their own cultural understanding of what the, the new kingdom would look like. They thought it would come through force and violence. And Jesus repeatedly said that's not the way it would come. And one of these disciples, what John 18.10 tells us, is Simon Peter picks up the sword and wields it. And he wields it in such a way as he cuts off the ear of one of the servants. There we find metal in the air and blood on the ground. And what do we find Christ doing in the midst of this conflict? He speaks. He says, no more of this. No more of this. The one who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. The one who created universes and worlds and stars and animals and us. He speaks and says no more. He's trying to bring order out of the chaos. He's trying to quiet the eruption of noise of this crowd and his disciples and all that's going on. Perhaps that's your life right now. I was talking to a friend earlier in the week. He has a lot going on in his world. His own personal story is one of tremendous brokenness. One that he questions and, and wrestles with shame each and every day because of the, the various reality of his own childhood and upbringing. He has, like all of us, issues in his marriage and issues with his kids, and issues with work, and it's just right now that they're quite all coming together in a convergence. And as we were talking and on the phone, I, I told him about this. And one of the other translations that you could present for this, no more of this, is like a parent trying to quiet children and saying, enough of this. And my friend, while we were on the phone, broke down in tears. 
He says, Chris, the Lord doesn't say enough of you. He doesn't say enough of me. He looks out in the world and he, he sees the brokenness. He sees the conflict. He sees the personality frustrations. He sees the, the unmet desires and the unfulfilled dreams. He sees those things and he sees even more of the conflict. The conflicts that have been so prevalent in our news media for the last year or so. He says, enough of this. He says, I understand where this comes from. This comes from the brokenness of humanity and the sin that pervades our life. Jesus is stepping into the fray and he says, no more of this. And in the midst of an ill-formed conflict, in Jesus' final act, of freedom he reaches down and picks up the ear and through the tremendous work of the Lord he brings healing to his enemies he heals Malchus's ear as it tells us in John Malchus went on to become a believer in Jesus his life was transformed through this touch of grace from Jesus what we don't find in this passage is that same expression of grace. This same divine miracle changing the lives of the high priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders. Because what they do is they move from this ill-thought-out conflict to seizing Jesus. So much so that he says at the end, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus understands the grim reality and that there is no evacuation. And he gives himself willingly into their hands. He seized and he led out. And what we find as you continue on, that they go into the courtyard of the high priest. And there we find an all too familiar passage. Where Peter, the one with all the broad bravado who's brandishing the sword, goes in. And when he sees his dreams of the, the messianic fulfillment that he had envisioned not coming to fruition. And it seems for certain that his rabbi, Jesus, the one whom he has followed and left a small business and seen do all these things is, 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 is headed for his imminent death. He's all about saving his own skin. And at the little slave girl and the, the inquiries of two other folks within this garden around a fire, he, he saves himself by diminishing his experience with Jesus, saying, I never knew him. Even lifting up curses to, to pronunciate his experience and how he never knew Jesus. You see, when we get into this situation and we look at Peter and we, we see this act of denying of Christ, we, it's easy to simple, simply say, well, well, that was just Peter. But the reality is that Peter's sheer humanity makes him everyone's teacher. Peter's sheer humanity makes him everyone's teacher. One pastor commenting on this passage says, His impulsive deeds... His frequent questions, his eager exclamations and confessions, the praise and honor and rebukes that were bestowed upon him, his sometimes manly and sometimes cowardly acts, his oaths and his tears, all make 
Um, all this makes Peter the great companion and great instructor of his fellow man and his fellow Christian. Indeed, this night when he denied his friend, when he denied his Lord, this failure is perhaps his most instructive night. We know of the story of, of Peter as he goes out and he's broken and he's repentant. Repentant. Peter's repentance leads him back to Jesus. Judas's remorse does not. And Jesus, at the end of, of God, John's gospel, restores Peter to ministry through his repentance. From there, after the denial, what we find is through a miscarriage of justice. Jesus is ultimately rejected by his people. He's rejected by those in authority in, in, in the temple. He's rejected by the people when they choose Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. So what we find is that Jesus went through a lot. He was betrayed. He saw conflict. He was seized and led away. He was denied and he was rejected. Friends, I don't know what it is that you're going through. But just this one night alone gives me confidence to say Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus has been there. And he did not evacuate. He fought to the end and would not surrender. For he knew that's how redemption was to come. He knew how that was to show grace in the midst of terrible failure and treason. And what we find as we sit this time side of the resurrection is that we look back and we see that though Jesus was betrayed he was betrayed so that we would belong that we would be reconciled to the father through his work that that he would take on our sin and restore us that he would present us faultless and blameless before his father that we would belong and be called beloved. That in the midst of our conflicts, Jesus steps in to bring transformation and healing. Malchus received it. He experienced it. And his life was changed because of it. What we understand is that God's grace changes everything. God's grace changes everything. It, it removes our Conflicts and it brings about reconciliation and healing. And though Jesus was uh, seized and, and led astray as a captive, he was done so that we would be brought near. And Apostle Paul says this in a manner of speaking in Ephesians 2, and he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He knew that in order for us to be brought near, he would have to be led to a cross so that he could pay for the punishment due for our sin. Though Peter denied him, and though we too have denied Christ, Jesus on the cross turned our denial into a deliverance. To where we would profess him as our Lord and Savior and put our confidence in him. That in the midst of our darknesses, the, the, the light of the gospel would shine and give us hope. That he would rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from our situations. And not only would he rescue us from those things, but he would rescue us for glory. 
He would rescue us for something greater still to come. And even though he was rejected, rejected by his people and rejected by the authorities of the day, he was, we are received because of his rejection. We are received because of his rejection. We have been made sons and daughters, brought in to his kingdom, into his family. We have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We have been united with Christ in his righteousness. You see, when we consider this grim hour and all that Jesus was to go through, what we understand is that the gospel brings about tremendous transformation. It brings about tremendous redemption. It's a complete counterintuitive reversal of roles because the one who everyone expects to do something with might and power to bring about deliverance does so as a suffering servant, does so in his selflessness, does so, as Bill talked about last week, through suffering and sacrifice and his service. And that's hard for us. It's not in our core what we desire. It, it rails against everything we've ever been taught to look out for number one. That it's a dog-eat-dog world, and what Jesus says is not in my kingdom. That's not how the economy of redemption works. He also is telling us that whatever it is that we have, whatever brokenness or dark space, whatever betrayal or conflict, whatever seizure or led astray or whatever way we might have denied Jesus, that he will meet us in that space and that he will not give up on us and that his grace will not run dry and that his grace, when it is applied to our lives through his word and by his spirit, will bring about transformation. Friends, this passage, though we will look again next week at the glorious reality of the cross and the resurrection, we do so understanding the fullness of his redemption because he did not evacuate, because he did not give up. And as they might have called Operation Dynamo a near miracle, what we look at is a true miracle, the work of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you that you have written a far more beautiful plan than we could have thought or imagined. We thank you that you are at work in our lives and in our brokennesses and our shames and that you are turning those things in a new way. Lord, for your glory. You are working them together for our good. Lord, help us to remember all that Christ has gone through. Lord, that in the fullness of who he was, both perfectly God and perfectly human, Lord, that he has experienced so much of what is so heavy upon our hearts and minds. And Lord, help us to draw near to him. Lord, draw near to him in love for the way that he has loved us first. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the gift of this passage and what it teaches us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.